Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Symmetry Project. It can be found at globalsymmetryproject.com, and there you will find the e-journal, Global Symmetry, the blog, Rising Brixham, our three podcast series, the Now series, Shaking the Global Order series, and the Summit Dialogue series, and last but not least, our YouTube channel, Global Symmetry. As I point out in the uh, uh, written introduction, uh, there are a burst of summits and global summits coming uh, this fall. Many of these summits will tackle various aspects of climate change and uh, the impact on the Anthropocene. To discuss these issues uh, in the upcoming summits and global summits, I couldn't think of anyone better uh, than Angel Shu to bring into the virtual studio. Angel is an assistant professor of public policy and the environment, ecology, and the energy program at uh, the University of North Carolina. Angel explores the intersection of science and policy and the use of data-driven approaches to understand environmental sustainability, particularly in the, in the areas of climate change and energy, urbanization, and air quality. Angel holds a PhD in environmental policy from Yale University, an MPhil in environmental policy from the University of Cambridge, and a BS in biology and, and a BA in political science from Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So, uh, join me as I invite Angel Shu back into the virtual studio. So, it's a pleasure to ha have you back in the studio, Angel. Um, I hope all is well with you. Yeah, it's really great to be back here, Alan. Thanks so much for the invitation. Oh, it's great. So, the last time we uh, sat down, Angel... Uh, was just following the Global Climate Action Summit that took place in San Francisco in 2018, September. And uh, this summit was hosted at the time by uh, former, now former, Governor Jerry Brown. And uh, just before the summit, the data-driven EnviroLab uh, released the first report, Global Climate Action from Cities, Regions, and Businesses, and you, of course, are the director and founder of that lab. And then you released a second report, and that was at the UN Climate Action Summit that took place in September 2019 at the uh, UN headquarters in New York City. Maybe, Angel, to start out, just can you review the conclusions you drew from these two substantial reports of 2018 and 2019? Well, wow, that feels like a lifetime ago, 2018 <laughs> and 2019. And it also feels like that was a time when it seemed like climate change was the most important issue. I mean, it still is, I think, the most important issue defining our generation and future generations. But now it just it's completely colored by this global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And even though there are many parallels, I remember last year when the pandemic hit, we were just starting to ramp up work on the third version of these reports, which actually will come out the week of June 7th. So that's also very exciting oh, that we've yes. been continuing this work. And, but yeah, when I was 
starting to compile the data, particularly looking at net zero targets. And so uh, that's probably the biggest development since we launched our first report in 2018. The fact that around that same time, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, had mm-hmm. also released its 1.5 degrees scenario report. And so before that time, there wasn't really an understanding of what is it actually going to take to contain global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is the new Paris Agreement goal. Before that, all of the models and most of the scenarios had focused on two degrees Celsius. Right. And that's when we got introduced to this goalpost of needing to decarbonize, getting to zero emissions or net zero emissions by mid-century. And so last summer, I was doing a lot of the initial analysis to see what companies and cities and states and regions have also pledged by way of decarbonization and net zero targets by Mm mid-century. And so just to recap, I mean, the Paris Agreement in 2015, remember, facilitated this bottom-up process. And so not only national governments were asked to submit what they could do on climate change, but also you had parallel Conference of Parties summits alongside the national negotiations. So you had companies, Fortune 500, Forbes 2000 companies, and some national governments. So Mayor Anne Hidalgo of Paris, and also Mike Bloomberg, they were there Mm -hmm. convening hundreds of city mayors and state level governors to talk about what they could do on climate change. And so the 2018 report was really the first quantification of these commitments. And so while you have political theorists and political economists like Eleanor Ostrom that have talked about polycentric or multiple centers of climate governance being an antidote to top-down modes of governance that characterize the Kyoto Protocol, there hasn't been a lot of empirical data or evidence that this type of polycentric or multiple center, multi-level climate governance actually can be effective. And so this body of my research has really tried to do that. So can we actually develop the empirical base, the quantitative data and evidence to show that actually when you have multiple centers of activity and many actors and not just national governments taking action on climate change, mm-hmm. it can also be really effective. And so that's what these these two and now three reports are really meant to do. And so what we found in that first report in September of 2018 is that if we look at just 6,000 of these commitments on the part of some national governments and around 1,500 corporate actions they can lead to an additional one to two gigatons on top of what national governments have pledged in 2030. And so that may not seem like a lot, but that's around 4% of global emissions or about what Japan and Canada combined emit in a single year or what they emitted in 2012. And so to me, that speaks to the potential for all of these different actions that companies and states and regions and cities are pledging to leverage and bring us closer to that 1.5 degree Celsius goal. Because we know that there's about a 29 to 32 gigaton gap between national government policies and that elusive goal. And so we have to think about how we can raise ambition and get people to dig even deeper if we're going to have any chance of meeting that that target. And so that's really what these reports have done. And just as a teaser, the June report that will come out in just a few weeks, we again do the same type of potential quantification. But this year, we're also adding a new element to say what has actually been delivered. Mm -hmm. Are these actors actually following through on their promises? Because greenwashing, of course, so this is the problem where you could have companies or other actors essentially say that they're going to take action on climate change, but then they don't actually follow through. 
this is this is the first analysis that will try to actually provide some data and analysis on what progress has been achieved, who's on track, who isn't on track, and uh, who's who's actually following through on these goals. So that's something exciting that I want to just tease for your audience. That is a tease. So is there <laughs> is there an answer there? Is there? <laughs> uh... Yeah. So we actually published the largest study that looked at primarily European cities progress mm-hmm. towards their climate targets. So one of the largest networks, one of the largest transnational climate initiatives is the European Covenant for, uh, it's called the European Covenant of, oh, I can't believe I can't even remember. <laughs> it's the EU Covenant of Mayors um, yes. initiative. And it has now close to 9,000 different uh, cities, primarily small and medium-sized cities in Europe that participate and they commit to voluntarily exceed the EU's target. So that was uh, 20% from, uh, I believe, 2005 or 1990 levels by 2020, mm-hmm. which, which is what most of the cities pledged. And then, uh, so they have to actually commit to something beyond that. So last August, we published a study in Nature Climate Change, and it was the largest study of this kind, considering 1,000 of these cities that have actually reported not just baseline inventory data, but an additional inventory gear so that we can then draw a line between those data points and actually right. say, okay, are they headed in the right direction? direction. Are they actually reducing mm-hmm. emissions? And mm-hmm. so that was the largest study of its kind that was done. And so we did a statistical model. And what was also really fun about this paper is we actually evaluated the strategies. So we wanted to see whether or not the actions, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then we did a natural language processing. So aided by machine learning, we then analyzed the core themes and strategies in the various documents that cities pledged to this platform and this initiative. And we wanted to see whether or not there was any relationship or association between what cities say that they're going to do and where they plan on actually taking these actions on climate change and Mm -hmm. an output measure, which is, are they actually reducing their emissions? And so what we found is that um, cities that tend to focus on energy efficiency uh, Mm -hmm. tend to have more um, ability to reduce their emissions. But we also found some surprising results as well. So in terms of ambition, we found a negative relationship. So the cities that are more ambitious in their emission reduction targets actually are those that tend to not be on track to achieve their emission reduction goals. And so that, I think, is a little bit of a lesson, especially because now there's a lot of efforts to encourage many more of these bottom-up actors to commit to net zero targets that perhaps maybe that's not the right way to go. Because for many cases, a lot of these actors, it may be really difficult or challenging for them to fully decarbonize. And so Mm -hmm. maybe just setting them up for failure. So that's one uh, hint at a uh, potential policy lesson in this whole process of pledging and reviewing and Right. Uh, and, and all of this bottom up action. So, yeah, so that so we do have an inkling. And so in that study, we found that 60 percent of those a thousand cities actually are on track to achieving their emission reduction targets. So that, I think, is actually encouraging, that is although we're seeing that the results um, are, are, are variable depending on uh, the different groups. So states and regions actually are not as on track to achieve their goals. So we only find about 42 percent of them are on track mm-hmm. to achieve their goals. And then companies, even though we only looked at a small subset of companies, we found that the majority of companies are on, on track to actually overachieve their targets. Wow. And so then when we started to dig into why, we found that many of them were not ambitious to begin with. Right. So okay. that uh, so there's a lot of nuance and complexity with respect to these targets. But I think the value of this analysis is that we're an independent group. We don't have any horses in this race. We're collecting the data. We're digging into it. We've developed these methods and these models to actually show what the potential is. And then now 
whether or not these different groups are actually delivering on their promises. And so I think that's that's the real value. And so we're hoping that the public and policymakers will be able to take this information and be able to see who's actually doing right. what and where are the where's the follow through actually happening, where are more efforts needed. And then we're hoping that this will start an ambition or virtuous cycle loop where we can have national governments take a look at what their um, company and their subnational government counterparts are actually doing and take that into consideration in, uh, in, in when they actually revise their original Paris pledges. So that's really the theory of change here. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, adding in that component of um, accountability and transparency is it would seem to me to be vital at this stage of the game, right? Yeah, exactly. Because that's what the whole Paris Agreement is built on. I mean, there's not a legally binding element to the Paris Agreement. It's built on this bottom-up process Mm -hmm. where it relies on the good faith of actors to pledge these targets, but then also follow through and not greenwash. And then also to produce the data that we need to then essentially know whether or not they're following through. And so it's it really does hinge on this idea that we need to have data and we need them to report on their progress to have accountability. Makes sense. So uh, let me take you uh, to um, a the recent summit. That's the uh, Earth Day Summit, which was called by the uh, new Biden administration. And uh, the United States, of course, um, uh, I uh, identify that it was going to cut U.S. greenhouse gases 50% uh, to 52% below 2005 levels by uh, 2030. And it was followed up in relatively rapid succession with commitments by Japan, Canada, Britain, and the European Community uh, Union, sorry, um, uh, with um, calls for commitments to uh, steeper cuts. But China, India, and Russia made no new uh, emissions promises at uh, this Earth Day uh, summit. And so the question is, what conclusions uh, should we draw, might we draw uh, from from this particular summit, which was uh, just last month? Well, I would say, first of all, this summit was pretty momentous. Biden had promised in his campaign pledges that he was going to host this summit. Mm-hmm. And he followed through. And this is after four years of no real meaningful engagement on the part of the U.S. national go- government in international climate negotiations or governance. So I just want to first say that, that this was actually, even though you did rightly point to the fact that not everybody came to the table willing to enhance the ambition of their pledges and to put new commitments on the table. I will say that one really positive aspect is the fact that we saw the U.S., back in a leadership position, which was really exciting because I've been going to the climate conferences for well over a decade. And it's been really disappointing Mm -hmm. to be an American and to go to these events and have absolutely no leadership from the part of the United States to look towards. And in 2016 in Morocco, during the U.S. election, I was there in Marrakesh. And just to see the wind literally get just blown out of the sails of the U.S. delegation and negotiators, many of whom I consider friends and colleagues. And mm-hmm. they, they were everybody was in complete shock. And then so so I think to go from from those conversations and then also to see the U.S. delegation hold pro coal rallies and events at these climate negotiations to go from there to see then President Biden and then also also special envoy John Kerry 
And mm-hmm. it just following that, I mean, that was that was really exciting. And the fact that there were commitments from Japan, Canada, Britain, and the EU to steeper cuts, I think that was also really encouraging. I mean, particularly because Japan, their previous commitment was really I mean, not not anywhere in line with um, what is needed for a major economy. And so I think I think we should first applaud the fact that there was a lot of substantive um, action that happened, and there was ambition that was raised. I mean, I think that that developing countries still are pretty cautious. And so it's not uh, totally unsurprising that they weren't necessarily willing to uh, put all of their cards on the table. Uh, mm-hmm. Many countries like India, for example, is going through the worst um, phases of the COVID-19 crisis. And so I think right now they're, they're just thinking about containing the pandemic and also economic recovery is at the top of many policymakers' agenda. And so I think many of them are not yet willing to commit to an overly ambitious or more ambitious climate pledge without knowing what economic recovery is going to look like or what's going to be involved in actually uh, rebuilding their economies and, and, and putting back together uh, their, their societies in the aftermath of, of COVID-19. And so I think that's the one um, piece that is, mm-hmm. is probably most unfortunate about COVID-19 is the fact that it has, uh, to some extent, really delayed climate action. So countries were supposed to submit their enhanced ambition NDCs, their nationally determined contributions, by the end of last year. But as of January of this year, I think it's only something like 40 countries had actually pledged an enhanced ambition Paris Paris pledge. And so that's uh, out of 196 parties to the Paris Accord, that's that's really nothing. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that, that COVID-19 has really put a significant delay in many of these pledges. And I mean, I will speak to China because China is one one area sure. that, that I follow very closely and I study quite closely. I, I mean, I, I didn't think it was surprising that President Xi Jinping didn't show up to the table to announce their enhanced ambition NDC. I think the world has really been waiting for that, especially because last September at the UN uh, General Assembly meeting, President Xi Jinping made the announcement that China would go carbon neutral by 2060 60, or earlier. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. being the first developing country to actually make that kind of pledge was really momentous. And so I think everyone's kind of been waiting with bated breath to, to see what the details of that particular plan are going to be, particularly because we know that China is going to have to enhance the ambition of its 2030 pledge to actually get there. And so we haven't yet received any details of that. But, you know, I mean, given the relationship between the U.S. and China and the political competitiveness of that relationship, it was no surprise to me that President Xi Jinping is not going to give President Biden the satisfaction or the U.S. the credit of getting that type of enhanced commitment out of China. So I think China is still waiting for that moment where it can also bask in its own limelight of that kind of of that commitment. And so that wasn't all too surprising. And I think it really is developing countries, they they still, I think, are, are falling under this UN framework principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, where they strongly believe that developed countries should take the lead in, in ambitious climate action. And they still have to grow their economies. They still need to lift millions of people out of poverty. And that's their number one concern. And I think that those concerns are just sharpened even more by the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has just wreaked absolute uh, devastation on so many of their countries. And I, yeah, I mean, particularly India, I mean, it's just, it's such, it's a crisis situation for not just India, but for the world. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that um, I've heard from developing countries is 
the need to consider post-COVID-19 recovery alongside climate action? And how can they tie the two things together so that when they rebuild their economies, they're not falling back into, okay, building new coal-fired power plants, for example, or just investing in more fossil fire capacity? How can we actually get them to shift now at this critical juncture to build the infrastructure that will help them become more climate resilient in the future and, and hopefully be more resilient against potential shocks like global pandemics. Sure. So, so um, I, I wanted just to reference, I mean, at the Alaska meeting, which is the first meeting uh, of senior officials between China and the United States, there seemed to be some agreement for kind of discussions um, uh, around uh, climate, have they actually um, uh, uh, created a, n- a new joint kind of task force or is this still in the winds so far as between the U.S. and China? Yeah, I haven't heard of anything concrete mm-hmm. or specific that have come out yet. I mean, I think a lot of trust needs to be rebuilt. And so the Alaska Dialogue and certainly the climate summit that President Biden Uh, had uh, John Kerry was in Shanghai in the week before that critical summit on April 22nd to -hmm. try to smooth back some of their relationship that had clearly been damaged over the last four years. And so I think it is going to need to be taken more slowly because as we know, there are a lot of other geopolitical strains between the U S and China that also are ongoing and active discussions. And China has explicitly said that they're not willing to negotiate on climate in a vacuum, even Mm -hmm. though I think John Kerry and President Biden, they very much do. They want they want to make and forge ahead on climate change without uh, necessarily getting into some of these stickier issues, such as human rights and the trade war, for example, and uh, right. The situation in Xinjiang, for example, and so um, that's that. I think is is going to take a lot of time for the U.S. and China to figure out exactly what that looks like, how they can still move forward cooperation on climate change, with uh, with being sensitive to these other concerns that China has, and not from the U.S. perspective just completely blindsiding and and focusing on climate change in a vacuum because the Chinese are are not willing to do that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there was a lot of uh, trust that was that was damaged. And as we know, the U.S. and China, that bilateral relationship was absolutely critical to securing the Paris Agreement and to getting a lot of other countries on board. So the two countries are the largest emitters of greenhouse gas emissions globally. They comprise nearly 40 percent of global emissions. And so to have both of them break this decade long impasse on climate action uh, in 2014 at the Obama and Xi summit, that was really critical to paving the way. Right, absolutely. And, and then there was not really any meaningful engage- engagement um, bilaterally at the national level the last four years. And so it's right. going to take some time to smooth that over and to, and to find a new working relationship given the complexities of the geopolitical situation between the two countries. Okay. Um, and now it, it was the case that uh, President Xi Jinping uh, did say he would uh, uh, are committed to strictly limiting increasing coal consumption that is in, in, in the next five years and phase it down in the following five years after that. Um, while that's you know kind of helpful, we're also aware, and uh, I suspect you are uh, more than I, of uh, the difficulties of limiting coal consumption and elimination um, with uh, coal fire plants in China, um, and and also eliminating for uh, foreign coal financing that China has been undertaking now for a number of years. 
Um, how concerned are you that uh, either because of China's provinces and districts concerned, particularly with employment, or because of national level security, national security concerns, that China won't uh, limit its coal use nearly to the degree uh, that is required? So this is the single biggest conundrum that I think um, at least I face in trying to reconcile and understand China's leadership, potential leadership. I mean, it depends on what side of the coin you fall on in terms of, of of their position on climate change. Because on one hand, you look at the numbers in terms of what they're doing on clean energy investment, and it's just leading the world. They're the mm-hmm. number one investor on clean energy and renewable technology. They have five of the 10 largest wind turbine manufacturers and nine of the 10 top solar panel manufacturing companies. They produce more than, I think, 60% of the world's solar PV, mm-hmm. and they manufacture 30% of the world's um, electric passenger vehicles and, and almost all of the e-buses that are sold. And so you look at those numbers and you say, well, absolutely, China is a leader on climate change and clean energy technology. I mean, that's just absolutely incredible that they've really single-handedly driven down the price of these technologies for so many other countries, including the United States. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, you take a look at their overseas investments and three quarters of those investments are in fossil fired projects, um, Mm -hmm. oil, uh, oil, gas and petrochemicals. And um, I mean, they're they're directly financing and contributing to the growth of coal in Southeast Asia, which is um, one of the regions that the IEA projects is, is going to continue to use coal for the next several decades. And so it, it's really hard to reconcile because you can't consider China a climate leader by just looking at what they're doing within their own borders. And so mm-hmm. this carbon leakage problem is, I think, the single biggest uh, conundrum for me in, in trying to understand China's strategy on climate change. And I think that Chinese leadership are also starting to reconcile this duality and recognizing that they also cannot play both sides, uh, trying to clean up their carbon emissions at home and trying to shift their own electricity sector away from coal, which they have to do by 2050. The roadmaps are, that are coming out of Tsinghua University show that China has to completely eliminate coal from their electricity mix by 2050. And right now it stands between 60 and 65% of their electricity generation. So that's a lot. That's going to be a huge amount of work for them to completely shift coal out of their electricity sector. But then they're building coal-fired power plants every single day, still in the country, and then Mm -hmm. also financing and exporting a lot of this coal-fired technology overseas. And so the, the Chinese leadership, they're, they're well aware of this problem. And so I think November of last year was one of the first times I heard a Chinese government official actually speak to this point specifically. So Vice Minister Shi Zhenhua, who was in retirement and now has been plucked back from retirement to, again, be the special envoy on the Chinese side to shepherd China through these commitments that they're going to need to be making in the next few months, Uh, He said at this uh, European business forum last, I think it was last November, that uh, China certainly cannot continue to finance coal overseas and that they're well aware of this and they're going to have to stop. And then uh, to even have Xi Jinping remark during this April 22nd event that they would need to limit coal consumption. That was one of the first times I had heard top Chinese leadership make this kind of comment. So even Mm -hmm. though it may seem like it's really subtle, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the Chinese context, 
uh, President Xi Jinping would not make that kind of statement if there wasn't actual real weight behind it and there wasn't real intent to actually come up with a plan. And they probably are, I mean, I'm sure they already have a plan and multiple plans for how to actually get there. They just want to be absolutely sure that they're not going to promise something that they can't deliver on. And so that's, I think, the nuance between Chinese leadership and and what they say and, and in other contexts where you might have leaders. I mean, President Trump made all sorts of promises of different things. Uh, and, yeah. and we know that many of those were empty and, and weren't actually backed by anything. But in the Chinese context, they actually are real statements that are very thoughtful and are backed by dozens, if not hundreds of modelers and analyzers and policy experts who Uh, are confident that they can chart a roadmap for China to actually do that. And so I think the fact that the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been uh, active for uh, almost the last decade, is is now receiving a lot of scrutiny. And um, China has been been putting green finance as part of its uh, five-year plans, and it's also part of the 14 five-year plan. And so they they definitely want to continue their global leadership on the climate change and clean energy issue. And this is another way for China to exert their soft power and their influence. And so I think that they, they recognize that. And so I'm hoping that in the months leading up to the next COP26 meeting in Glasgow, we're going to be hearing more details about what that actually means. What does it actually mean to limit coal consumption? And how are they going to address uh, this issue of financing overseas coal and fossil fired assets? Are they actually going to put strict limits for their two major development banks and guidelines to say that they're not going to continue financing? And if they do, I think that'll be really huge because we certainly don't see other development banks, other uh, governments who have put similar types of restrictions. Right, right. Okay. Well, let's try and then and, and look forward, uh, Angel. Uh, I noted, I uh, no, noticed, sorry, that the UK has been pushing uh, the uh, G20 uh, leaders, uh, this being the G7, the G7, um, uh, moving forward. It's a June meeting uh, in Cornwall, I believe, um, and they've been pushing on stopping government funding uh, for uh, the energy sources that produce greenhouse gases, including internationally, uh, and to eliminate the use of coal. Uh, according to the draft ministerial statement. So that's, uh, you know, the issue of uh, subsidies uh, for fossil fuels has been a longstanding issue. Do you Mm -hmm. have any sense that they're um, actually going to be able to achieve some success um, at the Cornwall G7 summit? I hope so. I'm optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic because I do think this is an incredibly important issue, as you mentioned, where fossil fuels have been subsidized for far too long. And mm-hmm. so it always really irks me when people say, oh, well, it's going to be too expensive to tackle climate change and it's going to cost our economy billions and trillions of dollars. And it's like, well, you know, we've been we've been supporting and subsidizing coal and oil and gas companies for centuries. And so it's kind of like it's this is a little bit overdue. Um, (laughs) And even even if uh, we were to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies, I mean, it's still just a drop in the bucket. and so, yeah, and, and then it would have an outsized impact. And so I think I, I saw an uh, IMF, an International Monetary Fund report a couple of years ago that said that if fossil fuel subsidies were just cut and eliminated, then that would in and of itself just reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by close to a third. 
And so that's that's really significant. And so the fact that you still have so many governments that are subsidizing fossil fuels, I mean, and, and to not even mention the other externalities and the social impacts that continued fossil fuel use uh, translates that are currently not being appropriately accounted for. So air pollution, for example, water pollution and public health costs and asthma, uh, cardiovascular disease, strokes, all of these, all of these health complications and public health issues are also currently not necessarily accounted for in uh, the cost of these subsidies. And so, I mean, I, I definitely hope that uh, there will be momentum and commitment, but we have seen this issue come on the agenda of G20 mm -hmm. and G7 summits before, and you always get a few countries that are reticent and not willing to put their ring in the, in the hat. And unfortunately, there hasn't really been a lot of uh, action on this point. But where I am hopeful is the fact that we do have this really clear goalpost that the IPCC set out for us, which is that we have to decarbonize, we have to eliminate uh, fossil fired electricity by 2050. So I think the IEA also came up with a similar roadmap that's that right. aligns with these IPCC goals. And so mm -hmm. we have to, at least in the electricity sector, completely decarbonize it. And so I think having the G7 countries eliminate these subsidies will be a huge way forward. And because we're already seeing that the economics of clean energy just make sense globally. And in many parts of the world, it's actually much cheaper to power a power plant using renewable energy than it is for coal and, uh, and yeah, coal and, and even natural gas in, in many parts right. of the world. Right. And so uh, there was a really stunning report that um, Energy Innovation came out with just recently. And, and, and so they were doing an economic analysis. And what they've shown is that in China, it's actually more expensive to just maintain coal-fired power plants than it would be to completely replace them with a power plant that's uh, that's that's uh, powered completely by renewable electricity. And so that's just such a really clear case. And so, and the same thing in the United States. And so I, I think also in the United States, we can see that um, natural gas has displaced coal and, and the economics of coal are simply just not favorable compared to renewables. And so I think the United States just based on simple economics, we'll continue to phase out coal. And also I think natural gas will be, be heading that way too. So I think we're gonna be seeing a peak in natural gas consumption very soon, if not already. Uh, we saw natural gas took a major hit this past uh, year due, the, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I don't see why we wouldn't continue to still see that trend progress into the future. And uh, just because the, the economics of renewables are just so much more favorable now, right. and it just makes so much sense. And so, of course, when you generate power using wind and solar, then you're not contributing to air pollution and water pollution. And so um, to me, it just seems like it makes a lot of sense. And so I think that that makes the, subsidi the, the subsidy of fossil fuel assets just even more uh, nonsensical when you think about the economics too of, of generating electricity from these renewable sources. And so I definitely think that there's probably more momentum now that we have this data and now we see that uh, fossil fuels have really taken a hit due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think that there's at least hopefully a little bit more momentum on the side of eliminating subsidies because of what's happening and what's happened in the last two years. Okay. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I remain cautiously optimistic, but I feel like this has been on the agenda every year uh, since the major economies have been meeting and there hasn't really been a lot of momentum. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of, one of the, the major countries that continues to subsidize fossil fuels is of course China. And so I think um, with these statements by Xi Jinping saying that they're gonna limit coal uh, consumption and then also with the carbon neutrality goal, China certainly has a plan to phase out 
these subsidies for itself uh, in the, it, they're going to have to uh, in the future. And so I think with China taking the lead, hopefully more countries will follow, particularly uh, developing countries. So uh, a final question, Angel, uh, what are your expectations for COP26? I mean, earlier, I, I, it seemed as if this was going to be the opportunity in Glasgow to ramp up uh, NDC, uh, the NDCs for various countries. Uh, is that still the hope or are, is there more caution now with respect to this meeting, which is going to run from November 1st through November 12th and immediately following, in effect, the G20 summit in Rome? Yeah, I think that that's still the the major aim is to is to get these enhanced ambition Paris pledges on the table. And as I mentioned, we have now with the United States have seen more countries are pledging these these uh, goals and, and Biden summit really helped to, I think, catalyze and to reinvigorate some excitement about the COP26 meeting in November. And so I'm hoping that that China very soon will also announce their 2030 roadmap. Mm -hmm. And their revised targets. And then hopefully you'll have other countries like Russia, for example, and India also follow suit. And so I I think we still have some time, even though it has felt like a suspension, as I mentioned, because there has been so many. Yeah, yeah, because of COVID, there has been a lot of delays. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping that that countries will still uh, commit in the in the months leading up to COP26, these enhanced ambition NDCs, so that we have a much better sense of where we stand. And so the global stock take is supposed to happen in 2023. And so the Paris Agreement had these five-year review cycles built into it to continually take stock of where we stand, how much further we have to go, what's being uh, delivered. And so uh, that's supposed to happen in a very short two years. And in order for us to be able to actually take stock in 2023, we need to know, well, what are the what are different countries pledging? And so this is a really critical moment so that we can continue to work towards 2023's global stock take. But yeah, I think it's going to be really tricky. As I mentioned, there is still a lot of uncertainty surrounding COVID-19. And so the climate modelers, including myself, were kind of going crazy developing this, these scenarios, not knowing how much emissions will actually rebound. So globally, we achieved a historic drop of around 7% of global emissions at the end of 2020. That's the the latest projection from the Carbon Budget Project. And that was historic. We've never, ever in any period of time been able to achieve that. And so Mm -hmm. I think the major question is now, how much are emissions going to rebound? And when Mm -hmm. China started to open up after their initial lockdowns, their emissions rebounded 25%. Uh, above pre-COVID levels. And so that's that's really scary if other countries actually also follow suit. And so I think that's the major piece of uncertainty here. And so what I'm really hoping uh, that, that countries will be able to do in COP26 is to actually really rethink about their COVID recovery strategies and how to actually make those aligned with climate goals. And now we're seeing that more than 126 governments around the world have pledged net zero carbon neutrality targets by mid-century. And so I think those are really good guideposts for what needs to happen, where, where we actually need to be in mid-century. And so hopefully the idea is that, that countries and governments will be able to keep those in mind and then set a midterm target for 2030, 2035 for how to actually get there and then align those with COVID a recovery plan. So it's not just, okay, we're going to develop a stimulus and we're going to spend and build and develop our way out of this, this slump. And, and hopefully that's not the, the, the path forward. And so hopefully, I mean, I think South Korea has a really brilliant 
plan, which is is this Green New Deal and and actually investing in green economy, green infrastructure, digital uh, infrastructure, and and, um, and 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 really making that their future rather than okay, say we're going to just build a lot of infrastructure that we don't need or invest in polluting. Uh, infrastructure that is not going to be sustainable for the long run. And that's fundamentally incompatible with a long-term decarbonization strategy. So I always like point to South Korea as being a really good example of a plan that actually aligns post-COVID recovery strategy with climate goals. That's great. Well, thank you, Angel, for taking the time to review some of the, you know, uh, serious kinds of targeting and, and emissions questions that, Uh, that lie before us in the not very distant future, in fact. So thank you for uh, coming on board to talk about these things. 